Welcome back to Catholic Answers Live. I'm Cy Kelly, your host, and as promised, Swan Sona with us this hour, and we'll talk about the veneration of icons. Uh, what is that all about? Uh, what does that mean as far as our understanding of worship, worshiping God and not images, all of that? I forgot to tell you something last hour that I was supposed to tell you, though, so before I introduce Swan and bring him on here, I want to tell you that our Catholic Answers YouTube channel because of the amazing work of Zach Maxwell, who is in charge of that channel, now has 150,000 subscribers. So uh, I don't even know if Zach can he can hear me. Can he hear me in there? Congratulations, Zach, on reaching 150,000 subscribers. Now on to a million, to infinity and beyond. Nice work, uh, Zach. And uh, apparently uh, the Lord approves of Zach's work as well, because he's, uh, he's reaping a, a, a great reward next month. He'll be gone for the next couple weeks because he's getting married. That is one of life's great rewards, marriage. Um, well, anyways, congratulations on both of those things. But especially, and I mean this from my heart, on getting 150,000 subscribers. The <laughs> uh, uh, Swansona is our guest, and as I said, we're going to talk about uh, the, the veneration of icons. Uh, Swan uh, was a Baptist. He converted to Catholicism. You probably know him from Intellectual Conservatism, his podcast, but that is now changed to Intellectual Catholicism. Swan Sona, thanks for being with us. Oh, it's great to see you again, Sai. I'm so happy to be back. Oh, we're very happy to have you back. We missed <laughs> you, actually. Uh, so if I just go to uh, intellectualcatholicism.com, I'll find your podcast. Well, so it's not a, a website like that just yet, but oh. it is a YouTube channel and podcast. Mm. Ah, YouTube channel. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, mm. um, and, and what kind of things will I uh, see there? Because you have such an appreciative following, and I think people are appreciative of you. And I, I see Protestants—I I have to say I've seen dozens and dozens of Protestants say, I just like Swan so much because he's so considerate the way he speaks. He's so— um, uh, you know, like respectful, I suppose, is what they say. So uh, what are they going to find at intellectual Catholicism? Right. I mean, so the mission of the channel is just to present the best of Catholic intellectual content to do so in a way that is, you know, kind of in the spirit of dialogue and charity. And so you're going to see things on like icons and veneration, a lot of my work on the papacy, and even other issues related to Catholic and Orthodox and Catholic and Protestant debates. Uh, and you were among the people I noted. I noted were um, I, I believe cited by uh, Cameron Bartuzzi. That yeah, he, Cameron Bartuzzi. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. That he uh, famous uh, 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 spiritual religious uh, podcaster, uh, a searcher in many ways, but Protestant uh, Christian. Now came into the Catholic Church. So, um, are you taking full uh, credit for that because you convinced him of the papacy or? No, no, no. The full credit goes to God, right? Oh, and then okay. I'm but his humble vessel, right? So <laughs> okay. I played the part with the papacy insofar as I could, but there were a lot of other people like Matt Brad, Trent Horn, who did a lot of good work. So yeah, yeah. I just Cameron played himself. my little snippet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. But it really does uh, suggest that dialogue uh, that that includes a, a, a real sincere effort to, to reason together, uh, it matters. It, it's not just nothing. It, it does matter. Yeah, it really does. You know, just treating the other person with respect, making sure they feel heard, and then really taking the other person seriously. That's really important. I'm going to try that. I'm, I'm getting closer and closer to trying, respecting other people and taking them seriously. Uh, I'm almost fully <laughs> convinced. 888-318-7884 is the number, 888-318-7884. What, what is icon veneration? What are we talking about when we say the veneration of icons? 
Right. So in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, if you look at paragraphs 2132 or paragraph uh, 477, what you see is basically it says, the honor paid to sacred images is a respectful veneration, not the adoration due to God alone. So that's important. So it's not icon, let's say, worship, as in the same kind of worship we give to God. It's a veneration. It's a show of respect. And then the other thing, too, is that um, as the Catechism says, the movement toward the image, right, if we bow or if we kiss it, does not terminate in it as image. That is to say that we're not, you know, let's say putting it all in the image, and that's what we really care about, but tends towards that whose image it is. So the person, the event that is being represented. That's an important thing to keep in mind. So uh, 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 this is a... I'm familiar with this as a conflict between Catholics and Protestants in, in yes. many places. But would you say that the, that Orthodox Christians and Catholics are generally agreed on this, or are there differences in the way that we understand the veneration of images? Well, I would say that the um, Orthodox and the Catholics were definitely on the same page in terms of the veneration of icons and the use of images. So this isn't really an area that we differ. It's an area where Protestants and Catholics differ. So uh, I got to say, it does sometimes seem, Swan, that the Second Commandment is on the side of the Protestants on this one. Mm -hmm. uh, as a matter of fact, uh, that's usually the primary, the first argument made uh, from the Protestant uh, uh, position is uh, you, you, all of this has to be reserved only for God, uh, mm -hmm. all of this that you're doing with images, statues, icons, all that. Yeah, well, Sai, let's look at the second commandment. For us as Catholics, we put the first—it's part of the first commandment, so you should have no other gods before God, and we put it with the first commandment. But for Protestants, they have it as its own separate thing. So here's what the second commandment says in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. I'm just going to read a little snippet of it. It says, You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. All right, so at first it might seem like, oh, well, Catholics, they bow down and they venerate, but, you know, that really just means worship for Catholics, right? So that's what Catholics are really doing when they venerate icons. And it says you shouldn't make an image or an idol in the form of anything, right? That, that is basically yeah. heaven above, on the earth, water, whatever. So the interesting question I think we need to ask ourselves is, Okay, if we look at the second commandment in this way, and we just read it, let's say, in an isolated context, then it would prohibit all art, right? Because we can't make anything that's an image. So, you know, idol oh. might be a bit of a interpretation, but it really just says image. So does it mean that we can't make anything in the form of, let's say, a dove? We can't draw an image of a bird? Um, for Christian artists out there who draw pictures and portraits, is that prohibited? And what's interesting, Sai, is when you look at the history of Jewish interpretation of the Second Commandment, what you find is actually they didn't view it in that rigid way. Now, obviously, people are going to say, well, in the Old Testament, they did have the problem with images. No, but I'm talking about actual Jewish figures who are considered, let's say, Orthodox, who are beloved by God, who are never chastised. Okay, so let me give you some examples, right? So in 1 Kings chapter 6, 27... We see that when the temple is being built, notice that somebody might say, okay, images are okay as long as God specifically commissions them, right? But in the case of the building of the Solomonic temple, right, King David gives the instructions and then Solomon builds it. 
and they have this image of the cherubim in the temple. All right, so you see already then that the Israelite kings, they had the privilege of being able to, you know, use images in this way. King Hezekiah, who's famous for destroying the bronze serpent that eventually became worshipped by the Israelites, he, in his own royal administration, if you look at the archaeology on this, his royal seal, his official stamp of approval on things, had an image of a doe on it, of a female deer. When you look at the Second Temple period, as people were burying their dead and then putting them in these boxes called ossuaries in preparation for the resurrection, if you look on the, uh, on the ossuaries, what you're going to find are images of the menorah, right, of the candle. Ah, uh, yeah. And then in the Herodian period, so this is about 30 BC to about 73 CE, so into the time of Jesus, you see that wealthy Jews, they had houses adorned with images of birds and other natural creatures in their houses. And it's funny because even some of the archaeologists, they're really confused because they said, wait, we thought, you know, the Jewish people were aniconic and iconoclastic, and then here we're finding images everywhere. And then even during the time of Jesus, they found or this synagogue during the time of Jesus called the Magdala Synagogue, where uh, Mary Magdalene might have gone when she was, you know, a young Jewish girl. And what they found in this synagogue were images of the menorah again. And then finally, when you get into rabbinic Judaism, uh, at the end of the second century, beginning of the third century, contemporaneous with the church, early church fathers, what you find is, for example, in the Mishnah, Avoda Zara 3.4, a rabbi, he says the following. Let me get up the quote really quick. So he says that about images, that which is treated as a god is prohibited, but that which is not treated as a god is permitted. So notice that they also weren't totally against images. They said the way you treat the image is what really matters. That guy sounds like a Catholic. <laughs> like that's this was Rabban Gamaliel, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the but, second. But mm -hmm. we must have learned it from him because that—that's uh, that is essentially the Catholic position, isn't it? Right. You can't treat it as a god in the sense that it competes with you know the Lord, right? It it can't be something that um, is adored in the same way. We can't, for example, have a pantheon of gods, right? That's and as Catholics, with respect to the veneration of saints and the Blessed Mother, we don't view them as gods. And very clearly, you know, even though Scripture, as I'm going to show later, endorses the veneration of saints, Scripture also doesn't treat them as other gods in competition with the one Lord. Yeah. So basically, when you look at Jewish history, what you see is they understood that images are okay. You just have to be careful how you use the image and how you treat it. So the second commandment is not this kind of rigid, absolutely no images. Over time, you see with the Jewish people, they develop their understanding, they're careful with how they use images, and then by the time of the third century, you have the Dura Europos synagogue, which is just adorned with all kinds of images that look almost like the catacombs, right, in the early church. So you see that the Jewish people eventually understood, oh, okay, it, it wasn't a total prohibition against images. We just need to be careful how we use our images. 888-3187-884, the number. This is a very uh, common kind of dividing topic, especially as we just spoke about with our guest Swan Sona, between Catholics and Protestants. Uh, so Christians uh, of any sort, we'd love to hear from you. Your experience with this may be challenging. Uh, what Swan has to say, or looking for uh, deeper insights from him, or sharing your own experience uh, in in whatever uh, uh, church or ecclesial communion you are worshiping in, uh, we'd love to hear from you. This is a kind of 
a pan-Christian uh, topic, and a, a, a great one for us to reason together about, 888-318-7884, 888-318-7884. Can we really venerate icons? Can we really venerate images? Swansona is our guest. We'll continue with that conversation right after this on Catholic Answers Live. There's only one Catholic Answers Live. Are you a coffee drinker? If so, you can now enjoy a coffee roasted to perfection by the Carmelite Monks of Wyoming. Delicious Mystic Monk coffee is roasted and prepared by monks in a hidden cloistered monastery and is available in over 25 varieties. All Mystic Monk coffees are works of perfection and labors of love. For more information on how to purchase Mystic Monk coffee, visit mysticmonkcoffee.com. That's mysticmonkcoffee.com. There is tremendous power in prayer because when we acknowledge that we don't have the power, but God does, things then begin to move for our good. Remember Matthew 19.26, but Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Now that's power. Welcome back to Catholic Answers Live. I am Cy Kellett, your host, and just by the eyeball test, for many people who come into a Catholic church or maybe an Orthodox uh, church, you might say, it looks like they're uh, worshiping those statues, or it looks like they are uh, offering a kind of adoration to these uh, images, including the icons, and that would seem to contradict uh, both the, the Second Commandment uh, in in the Protestant reckoning of the commandments, but also just the the common sense idea, I suppose, that, that comes from the Christian understanding that worship is for God alone, uh, a, 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 an understanding that comes from many sources, from many books of the Bible and from the whole experience of the Christian life, that really worship is reserved for God alone. So why do we do these things? Uh, should we be doing these things? If you are a, a, a Protestant brother or sister who says absolutely not, and you are, you'd like to challenge uh, the Catholic view, the Orthodox view of these things, 888-318-7884. If you're a Catholic and would like to understand them better, same number for you, 888-318-7884. All right, so there's one other layer to this that we could get to, mm-hmm. uh, Swan, and then I will go to calls, because calls are coming in. But oh, okay. w- <clears throat> one, one other layer that... that Often the image is not, uh, you know, uh, it's like not a crucifix where at least uh, we could share with our brothers and brothers and sisters, well, at least Jesus is someone we should worship, but it's Mary or a saint or uh, how, how can we justify this? Right. So before the break, what I dealt with was the objection that, you know, the veneration of images or just images in general didn't exist in Judaism. So we're moving the ball forward and we're seeing that, okay, actually, they never understood it in that rigid of a way. Now, when we come to the veneration of other persons, this is also something that has biblical attestation. So I can't claim the credit for this one. Uh, I know many other apologists and people who have brought this up. Uh, Brianna Jensky, I believe, was the one who showed me this uh, passage. But in First Chronicles 29.20, it says this, and I'm going to use uh, the JPS Tanakh 1917. There are other Christian translations of this passage that try to kind of avoid 
how venerating it sounds of the king, but get ready. So it says this, and David said to all the congregation, now bless the Lord your God, and all the congregation blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed down their heads and prostrated themselves before the Lord and before the king. And when you look at the Hebrew word that is used for the act of bowing down, um, if you look at Strong's Greek, it's 7812, Shaka. It's the same word. I might have butchered that pronunciation. But anyway, it's the I same it was good word. Myself. <laughs> it's the same word for worship. Okay. Now, obviously, the people, the congregation, they didn't worship the king the same way as God. All right. Or else that would have been something that totally would not have flown with anybody uh, who had, you know, two brain cells. Right. But the thing is, what you see in Jewish thought and in the Bible itself is that the relationship between the king and between God becomes closer and closer, such that by respecting and venerating the king, that honor ends up going to God. And that eventually plays out really well with Jesus being the son of David and the son of God. But also the act of bowing down, kissing, you can also find that in, for example, Exodus chapter 18, verse 7, when Moses sees his father-in-law, Jethro, and it says he bowed down and kissed him. Okay, so bowing down and, you know, kissing somebody, that's not against the scriptures, right? You can bow down to a living human being. First Chronicles 29, 20, you can venerate the king as well in the same act of uh, respect to God. Okay, so these things are compatible. The Bible doesn't blush, it just says it straight forwardly. But here's the thing, Sai, the saints are in a position more intimate than King David. So if you think about 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, where we see that we shall be made like him, we shall see Jesus face to face, we experience what's known as Christosis, where we become more and more like Christ, to the point where in 2 Peter 3.16, Peter says we become partakers of the divine nature. And you and I know that the saints are alive, okay? So yeah. if it's okay in the Old Testament to bow down and kiss a loved one because they're alive, well, we can bow down and kiss the saints as well because they are our living family members in the family of Jesus Christ. And they are more intimate and closer than King David was to God, right? Because they have now become partakers. And so my basic point here is, okay, look, veneration of the saints, it's okay with the Bible, right? Images are okay in the Old Testament, as long as they don't become another God. And we know in light of the fact that of the work of Jesus Christ in the incarnation of lifting up humanity to God, when we become partakers of the divine nature, you know, we don't become a fourth and fifth person of the divine trinity, right? right. But we become, in a sense, partakers and sharing in God's glory. And so there isn't this problem here with celebrating the fact that, let's say, Paul has become a partaker of the divine nature. Hopefully, Sai, you and I will one day become partakers of the divine nature yes. because we'll be made into saints. So... Um, these are just some of the things that I'll mention here. I know some other people might be wondering, okay, Swan, give me an explicit statement in the Bible where someone, I don't know, bows to an image and it's viewed as a positive thing, right? Um, maybe that's an objection that'll come up and I can deal with that uh, with the, in due time. But, you know, I want to get to the calls and see what people have to say. 888-3187-884, uh, the number. I will get to the call, Swan, but what an extraordinary passage. That was from the book of King. the first book of Kings? Was the the passage that you read? Yeah, so First Chronicles twenty nine oh, twenty, yeah, and then the act of you know bowing and kissing Exodus eighteen seven. Uh, extraordinary stuff, uh, Billy in West Virginia. You are first. Go ahead with your question for our guest Swan Sona. Billy. Yes. 
Uh, Billy, I don't know. Something is wrong with that phone. It's like we can hear you're there, but barely hear you. Is there anything you could do to address that? I'll tell you what I'm going to do, Billy. I'm going to put you on hold. Edgar's going to talk with you. We'll see if we can get that uh, cleared up because we cannot make out what you're saying, and we do want to hear it. Uh, let's go to Father Chris in Houston, Texas, listening to EWTN on Channel 130, Sirius XM, Satellite Radio. Father Chris, welcome. Go ahead with your question for Swan. Hey, hey guys. Um, my question was, I have an understanding that the Church in the East— whether Eastern Catholic or Orthodox, have dogmatized some of the depictions in the icons so that today modern artistic license would, you would try to avoid that because the way that a, like a story has to be shown in an icon itself has been dogmatized. And I was wondering, is, is my impression correct? And in the West... Do we have a similar practice, or is the artistic license seen differently? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, if you look at the Council of Nicaea itself and what it says, it does lay out specific kind of guidelines for the kinds of images that you can produce. So Nicaea II in 787, which is the last ecumenical council that um, Catholics and Orthodox agree on as ecumenical, um, in that council it talks about how, for example, you can't depict the deity of Christ as if it were a separate thing from his flesh and humanity, right? So you shouldn't also try to depict the Father because the Father is invisible, and the image of the Father is Jesus Christ, the incarnate Lord, and so that is the proper image of the Father if you're going to try to, and depict him. So these are some examples actually in the Second Council of Nicaea, or uh, Second Nicaea, where they lay out rules and, and prohibitions. And I mean, given that that is an ecumenical council, um, there might be some difference in canon law here and there, but I think for the most part, that's um, a universal uh, thing. Does that make sense, Father? It sure does. Thank you. All right. Uh, thank you very, very much. Uh, what, do you, the, so what was the iconoclast controversy then? If I, I'll go back to the college, but this just uh, piqued my interest. <laughs> if you would remind me what the iconoclasm is. Right. So the iconoclast controversy was basically, um, I believe, in it's in, in the sixth uh, century A.D. or going into the seventh century A.D. Um, if I'm getting the dates right, or it might be the seventh to the eighth. Anyway, you had these people rising up, basically um, defacing images, plastering, painting over them, and also destroying them. And that was the big thing. And it ended up upsetting a lot of people. And eventually. Um, I forget which emperor it was, but he releases this decree on the people, basically saying, um, you can't have any icons anymore in your churches. Now, notice what that means is people already did have icons in their churches, and they were venerating them, right? So the people kind of go up in arms. It's a massive uh, political debate. And then finally, the Second Council of Nicaea settles the issue. Uh, very good. All right. Thanks. So uh, on we go uh, with questions about—can we, we go to uh, Billy in West Virginia? We, okay, it sounds like it's good. Uh, Billy, I'm sorry uh, we had that problem. Go ahead with your question for Swan. I was just wondering about uh, how the, the, in the world self is propagated as number one in importance. Okay? Okay. Now, we are made in the likeness and image of God— is self to be adored and worshipped as much as or more than God? 
Okay, uh, Swan. I don't know if you heard all of that, but the you know it's it mm. is natural for us to promote ourselves, to put ourselves at the center of things. And Billy's saying that we are made if we're made in the image and likeness of God. Shouldn't we ourselves be venerated like God is? Well, I would say that obviously because we're made in the image of God, that affords a great dignity to the human person, and we should show great care and love and affection. But we don't want to show a care in such a way that we become replacements for God. And that's the thing that you have to watch out for, self-idolatry, when you think that you can do things that only God can do. And even in the Jewish tradition, when they were debating, you know, what is the proper limits on the images that we can make? Notice that it wasn't an absolute prohibition on images, just what kinds of images can we make? They were always most hesitant to depict the human form because the human form is the image of God, right, going back to Genesis. And so it was almost like if we draw the human form, then we're drawing God. And so I think even uh, in the Jewish tradition, eventually they did get over that hurdle in the third century. But the bottom line is, you know, we show respect to the human person that in a way that is compatible with respect for the human person. And if we turn ourselves into idols and replacements for God, we aren't ultimately respecting the human person because we're only truly happy when we're worshiping God. Uh, Billy, thank you so much. I'm, I'm really glad we got to, we were able to hear you on that one. Um, we overcame whatever the technical difficulty was. If you have a question or a challenge for our guest, Swan Sona, both are very welcome here. We're talking about the venerating of images, venerating icons, statues, artworks as a means of worship and prayer. 888-318-7884. The recent decision by the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade was a monumental victory for the pro-life movement. But the fight is far from over. With our new booklet, Why We're Pro-Life, we have produced the perfect tool to prepare you to have peaceful and convincing conversations to shed light on the truth about human life from conception to natural death. Catholic Answers is printing millions of copies of this booklet and we plan simply to give them away. You can help us in two ways. First, by generously supporting this project. 25 cents prints one book, $2,500 prints 10,000 and so on. Second, by helping us distribute the booklet through your parish, your school, or the pro-life ministry you work with. Catholic Answers is going to blanket the country with why we're pro-life, but only if you step up and help us. Thank you so much. For more information, visit whyweareprolife.com. Want to know more about the origins of the Catholic Church? Joe Heschmeyer explores the beginnings of Christianity in The Early Church Was the Catholic Church. Joe digs deep into the words and actions of those who lived right after the apostles to refute anti-Catholic claims of how the faith was lived back then. Order your copy of The Early Church Was the Catholic Church today at shop.catholic.com or get it at a good Catholic bookstore near you. As Catholic apologetics have gotten stronger, Protestant responses have gotten stronger as well. And now they have their own answers to rebut the standard Catholic proofs. Don't fret, we've got you covered. In his new book, Meeting the Protestant Response, apologist Carlo Broussard gives well-reasoned biblical answers to Protestant comebacks. Order your copy of Meeting the Protestant Response today at shop.catholic.com or ask for it at a good Catholic bookstore near you. Hi, this is Janet Williams. Please join us for Women of Grace tomorrow at 11 a.m. Eastern here on EWTN Radio. Now, back to Catholic Answers Live. 
Welcome back to Catholic Answers Live. I'm Cy Kellett, your host. Swan Sona uh, is back, and we're so happy uh, he's back. Swan is, uh, you, you, you might know him from uh, intellectual uh, conservatism, his uh, former uh, podcast, and he has changed that now to intellectual Catholicism. And uh, you should visit it, and we're just so happy he's here today to do a little bit of the theology of uh, Catholic uh, use, uh, Christian use of images, of icons, uh, because in many ways we often we talk about these things only uh, as a kind of um, answer to a challenge. And there's something much uh, deeper here than just the answering of a challenge. There's a, a great opportunity to understand uh, what it is for a thing to be, or a, for a thing or a person to be in the image of uh, another. And so uh, Swan's here to help us with that. Your calls, of course, and whether they're challenging or just curious, are very welcome. 888-318-7884, 888-318-7884. So what do you make of the challenge, Swan? Because you've raised this challenge before. I'm going to raise it again mm-hmm. before we go back to the phones. Of the, the challenge that says, show me one place in the Bible, anywhere mm-hmm. in the Bible, where somebody venerates an image, where somebody, you know, um, uh, prays before an, an icon. Any, show me anything like that. Mm-hmm. Right. So I do have some friends who will mention, you know, like the Ark of the Covenant, the image of the cherubim, because all these things were images that were made to ultimately bring honor and glory to God. So that might be one way to do it. But the other thing that I want to mention, too, is something that Jimmy Aiken raised against Gavin Ortland, which, you know, Gavin was basically saying the distinction between veneration and worship, that's, you know, it's not a biblical distinction. It's something that Catholics made, right? But then Jimmy Aiken pointed out, well, one is that it's obviously a biblical concept, as I mentioned already. But the second thing is, even if it weren't, it's a real distinction, right? It's something that people really do and recognize the difference between a venerating versus worshiping. One is showing honor and respect to a thing. The other is showing worship and honor that is to God alone. So let me give you an example, side because actually, you know, people are, I think it, it, what, what really surprises me is that actually icon veneration is a really natural thing for human beings to do. So, for example, um, you know, for people who have lost a loved one, they'll have an image up of their loved one. And maybe before they head out to work or they drop their kids off to school, they'll say, hey, tell grandma goodbye. Tell grandma that you'll see her later today. And they use that image as not only a way to, you know, communicate with that person, but almost like as if that image brings the presence of the person still there. And so this is actually something we do all the time as people. And even to tell you a quick story, when I was in high school and I lost a close friend of mine, um, you know, it was during an exam week and I was feeling really down. And so I held on to my friend's image. It was a close friend of mine. And I looked over and I saw one of my Catholic friends pulled out an image of the Blessed Mother. And my mind made the connection that, wow, what I'm doing with this loved one, with this friend of mine, that person is doing with the image of the Blessed Mother. And you see, God won't condemn. Surely God won't condemn somebody for holding on to an image of someone they love or, you know, saying goodnight. Let's say if a husband who has lost his wife says goodnight to an image of his wife, do you really think God is going to condemn that? Or does God also, I think, that's safe to say, would see that that's something innocent and it's not an idol? Uh, it, it does seem like the latter. It seems like that 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 natural kind of uh, that's a kind of natural evidence that this is just what mm-hmm. we do. That we um, that that we evoke uh, the the 
the person, the presence of the person, the memory of the person, we recollect all that with images, and that it's right. it's perfectly natural to do that, just like you would, uh, you know, there's certain houses from my childhood, if I went to visited them, this is just an analogy, mm-hmm. it's not the same thing, but, uh, you know, I'm not going there to worship that house or something, but it would bring back a certain memory, a certain joy, but also a certain uh, uh, sense of loss, that the person is not actually there, all that would, it just seems that that is natural uh, to the human being. So, right. uh, uh, to to do that. But is there is there in in what we do in the use of images? For example, um, it's very very common. Probably the most common thing for Catholics to pray in front of a Eucharist. I mean, it's not the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, a crucifix. The, we do pray in front of the Eucharist, but the uh, the cruci- yeah. the crucifix. <laughs> so here's mm-hmm. the I- the image of of Christ crucified and the experience of that is uh both the experience of the, I mean, there's the, t- the, the physical sensory experience of the image, mm-hmm. but there's a, you're not talking to the image. You're not um, recollecting mm. the image. Something else is said. There's, but this is absolutely the, I, I, I don't think there's anything more, I mean, saying the Our Father is probably the only thing more common than, uh, but mm. than uh, remembering Christ and and communicating with Christ at, in the presence of the of the crucifix. Mm. Right. I mean, we use the crucifix as a way to help us remember Christ's sacrifice on the cross. For anyone who watched and enjoyed the Passion of the Christ, right? We're having uh, an image of Christ and the sacrifice that He did on the cross as a way to help us grow in our devotion. So we see all the time that there are ways in which images can be used. And it doesn't automatically mean that they're idols. And as I mentioned before previously, the saints, we don't treat them as gods. We treat them as partakers of the divine nature because that's what Scripture says that they are. They have been made like Christ. And so we celebrate that. And I mean, to use another analogy, Sai, I mean, imagine if I was talking to my sister on my phone right now and you asked me, hey, Swan, who are you talking to? I lift up my phone and I say, I'm talking to my sister. Imagine if you said, Swan, are you saying that your sister's the phone? It's like, no, 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 I'm using this device right. to help me channel my words to my sister. And so the image, the icon does the same function, right? It's not, we're not giving it to the image itself as if the image is the end all be all. No, the image is pointing to that reality, that person that we are remembering and loving. And that's exactly what we do as human beings. Uh, it is indeed. And I do want to get to the calls, but let me offer one more analogy and see if it resonates with you. And that is, I don't think any Christian would oppose the idea of reading the gospel in order to put us in a in a in um in a recollected state with Jesus. So mm. to me looking at the crucifix is the same as reading the gospel. It's the mm. it's the you know what I hear depicted in the gospel I see depicted in the crucifix. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, the fathers, for example, like St. Athanasius, talk about how you are allowed to create, if you will, a mental icon of Jesus. So you are al- So some of the early fathers, they were kind of, some of them were stressing that you can't imagine anything of what Jesus looked like because that's, you know, putting an image on him. And then other fathers were saying, no, especially Athanasius, no, we can create a mental icon of Jesus and imagine what he looked like. And we do that all the time. So all of us have little icons in our head already. Like when we pray, when we think about Jesus, when we think about sitting down and talking to him, we already have mental icons. 
All right, uh, back to the phones we go. Neil in Los Angeles, California, watching on YouTube. Uh, thank you for joining us, Neil. Go ahead with your question for Swan Sona. Oh, hey, hey, guys. Uh, this is a great subject. Hey, um, so I'm, um, I was actually Orthodox, and then I became Catholic for various reasons, but now I'm Byzantine Catholic. And I just have to say that, you know, if I went into a church and it was devoid of images, I mean, it, would, it wouldn't be church. And I, my understanding of a lot of the theology of it is that, you know, it's, it's the church's icon itself, the church building and the community is an icon of heaven, the heaven, heavenly experience. So going into the church and experiencing the Eucharist and the icons and the music, it's all part of heaven coming down to earth. And for me, that's a huge part of my spirituality. So anyway, I'll, uh, that's all I had to say. I really appreciate the subject. Thanks a lot. What a wonderful point, though. Neil, thank you. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the Church, in a certain t- sense, is meant to be a foretaste of heaven. Right, right. I mean, I couldn't have said it better. Well, you didn't uh, say it. Well, I... <laughs> uh, Neil, I very much appreciate that. And I, oh, it's, it's, a, it's one of those things, though, Swan, that I, I think even Catholics have lost this sense that the Church building itself is meant to be a foretaste of heaven. And so we mm-hmm. chat with one another while we're in there. We do, we're, we're just distracted. We don't—but uh, a, a sense of reverent silence, uh, because even the building is meant to evoke uh, what's holy— Let's go to uh, Ed in Georgia, listening on 98.1 FM. Uh, Ed, go ahead with your question for Swansona. Hey, guys. Um, yeah, I, I get the veneration, and, uh, you know, I grew up Catholic, so I, uh, I get the, uh, you know, the motivation part, you know, was kind of built in with the all the all the icons, and, you know, it's sort of meant to generate or evoke emotions but the thing um that's different is praying seems to me praying to these people icons whatever is more than venerating you know it's like um i would consider that a form of worship Mm. uh Go ahead, Swan, and I'll let—Ed, we'll make it a little conversation. If, you, if you'll hang on, we'll come back to you. Go ahead, Swan, sure. how would you respond to that? Yeah, I think the important thing is, in terms of, um, let's say, when Catholics pray to a saint or to the Blessed Mother, what we're doing is more like communication, right? And what we believe is, as Catholics, is that because we are in communion, because, let's say, Christ's mother is my mother— I can talk to her just like I can talk to my human mother because she's still alive. There isn't this veil between heaven and earth. Christ tore that veil 2,000 years ago. And so heaven and earth are in communion through him. And so the idea of praying, you know, obviously there's a way in which we pray to God. We ask him for certain things. We ask him for forgiveness, something that we can only ask of him through his son, Jesus Christ. But we can also communicate with the saints out of love, out of a need for their intercession and help. I mean, and then even in Jewish thought, too, you'll see in various literature, uh, people cry out to, for example, Rachel. They'll cry out to various other Jewish figures. Um, They'll, for example, um, if you just look at 2 Maccabees, you don't have to read it as scripture, but you can just look at how they'll talk about the intercession of people from heaven, from paradise, to avenge Israel, right? So 
there was already this idea that you could communicate and cry out to people like Abraham and Sarah and look to them as an example, but not as a replacement to God. And that's the big key difference. Uh, what do you what do you make of that, Ed? Um, well, yeah, that's some limited things that went on, in my opinion. Um, but I think it's confusing. Uh, well, you know, the whole thing about praying to Mary and praying to the saints and all that, um, you know, to me, I find that confusing. Um, I know you can, you know, well, it's, you know, like your mom or like your great uncle that you loved or whatever. But um, it comes down to what do we really believe about this? That Are we actually saying that this intercession actually, you know, is for real, or is we're imagining it? Ah, I don't know. It seems what like a it very shouldn't... good question, yeah. I'm sorry, Ed, I interrupted you. That was just such a great question, but go ahead and finish. No, that's, that's the thing. Uh, there's there's no real, uh, I'd say, definite that this is actually occurring. That that it's other than just imaginary. Sort of it's just pretending. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Swam, what do you make of that? Right. So I think the question comes down to. Um, is there, let's say, evidence that the intercession of the saints actually does anything, right? I mean, one question I'd ask uh, the guest is, does he believe in, for example, miracles today, and that when we pray, we can actually receive miracles? And if that's the case, then let's apply that same standard of evidence to some of the best attested Catholic miracles that we have, like Our Lady of Fatima, or cases where people have, you know, at Our Lady of Lourdes, where healings happen, miraculous things really occur. The other thing I want to mention, too, is that when you look at, for example, I think it's um, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, we see that Peter's shadow has healing powers. And then even some of the relics from Paul, such as his handkerchief, are used to heal people. And then in the second century, what you see is the early Christians picked up the bones of saints and martyrs and collected them, and they believed that they actually did have these healing powers. So this is something incredibly early. It's something that you can see alluded to in the book of Acts. And so it has this idea that, no, the saints really do, even after death, still have a power and capacity to help us. And so what I would simply say is, okay, if you believe miracles still happen today when we pray to God, then let's look at the evidence for when people pray to saints and see how powerful is that evidence. And I think there's a lot of good evidence for things like Our Lady of Fatima, Our Lady of Lourdes, and other intercessions throughout history. Okay, Ed? Yeah, um, I would say that that's a good answer. Um, I would say that, you know, Peter Shadow, all that, you know, that was signs and wonders, you know, really for mm. the end of the world for the Jewish people. Because, you know, signs and wonders to them marked that, you know, truth. Um, and so that was all evident through the apostles. I do believe still that miracles happen today. Um, mm -hmm. But, I don't know, it's, it's thin, this idea that, um, you know, that people picked up relics and all that. And, and, and fine, okay, but... It's a, it's a thin, but it, it becomes too big. It's too cloudy. 
I don't know what I I I I think yeah, it's uh, it's making a big deal out of a molehill. I see. I see. It's yeah. it's really you're you're taking the thing of the shadow, and then going over to the first century. <clears throat> you know, really, we need to look at the the book, the mm. canon, and not the first century Christians. But I have to be honest with you, Ed. Um, two of the three examples Swan gave came from Scripture. You know, using the the handkerchiefs of Saint Paul. Like it's not mm-hmm. even Saint. It's not even a shadow. It's his handkerchief. He's not even there. They're taking them away. This would suggest that the the saints, because they are in union so intimately with Christ and are members of the body of Christ, they have within them the 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 miraculous uh, power. I mean, all in 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 God's time and in and in and with God's, um, you know, it's it's God's power. It's not their power, but mm-hmm. it, it it certainly suggests it. I do I do think um, if it's in the scripture, it's there for a reason. And those are two very striking examples: Saint Peter and Paul, both. And so we can only imagine. What about the other twelve apostles, though, some of whom are never mentioned again after the Gospels, uh, or are barely mentioned uh, again after the Gospels? Uh, it, it does seem to me that we could extrapolate that there are many, many examples. Um, but I, I got to go right. to the break, and I, I really enjoyed the conversation, Ed. Um, where uh, I, I don't harbor the illusion that we convinced you, but I do. Uh, I'm very grateful for the opportunity for the conversation. We'll take a quick break. Be right back with more on the veneration of images with Swan Sona on Catholic Answers Live. It's all about the truth. Catholic Answers Live. Underwriting for Catholic Answers Live is provided by Real Estate for Life. Real Estate for Life connects home buyers and sellers to real estate agents while supporting pro-life organizations. On the web at realestateforlife.org. If it's central to the faith, you can find it on EWTN Podcast Central, featuring the best of EWTN Radio, as well as faith-filled podcasts from our friends and affiliates across the nation, all in one place, all free. The destination for great Catholic audio programming is EWTN Podcast Central. It's like podcast heaven. Visit EWTN.com slash radio slash podcasts today. Do you love sharing the gospel and want to learn to be more effective? Join the St. Paul Street Evangelization Online School of Evangelization. You will learn to build bridges of trust and make disciples by befriending strangers, proclaiming the gospel, inviting people to the church, and praying with others. We'll ask for a pledge of financial support, but if you are unable to give, we'll give you a membership at no cost. Find out more and get involved today at streetevangelization.com. That's streetevangelization.com. Welcome back to Catholic Answers Live. I'm Cy Kellett, your host. Our guest is Swan Sona. Uh, one of the things that we have uh, discussed this hour is that often Catholics only talk about all these images and statues and icons that we have and our relationship with them when we're challenged on it uh, by our Protestant brothers and sisters. But uh, we shouldn't do that, because this is a, a, a quite a profound and healthy uh, part of Catholic and Orthodox and traditional Christian uh, spirituality. And so uh, we can talk in a po- just in a simply a positive way about uh, what God has given us in uh in 
his incarnation, uh, which uh, affirms all of our senses as uh, important uh, for receiving his word. Uh, uh, Swan, uh, you ready to go take some more calls? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's go to Dan in Fargo, North Dakota, listening on Real Presence Radio. Dan, we're glad you're here. Go ahead with your question for Swan Sona. Well, I was only on hold for about a minute. That's pretty good. Oh, don't say that. See, now other people are going to be mad at us, Dan. You're going to (laughs) make all those other people. (laughs) You're just causing trouble, Dan. (laughs) All right, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, Well, in my studies of Revelation, I came across the Armageddon passage, okay? Well, I always wondered what that's all about, because I knew it wasn't a time. You know, it's not... Um, this, you know, asteroid coming to Earth type of thing or whatever. But anyway, um, so I looked into it, and one of my study Bibles said that um, Armageddon, or Harmageddon, they put it, um, means Mountain of Megiddo. Well, then I, I had to look it up, and I looked on a map, and there is no mountain called Megiddo, However, it's a valley that has a particular mountain called Carmel. And at Carmel, um, most people who read a lot in the Old Testament would know that it's a very important mountain. And Elijah showed the one true God was Yahweh, and he defeated all the prophets of Baal and everything. Well, I was thinking in my head that this could be a good warning for people not to worship anyone else, and that would include um, images, and I've seen people worship the images, they shouldn't, I know that, but I've seen them. People actually think that St. Jude is the one's going to save when it's actually God, uh, stuff like that. And I was just wondering how that would all tie in there. Well, I think the first thing to point out is whether or not um, the passage of, let's say, Elijah Mount Carmel actually has any relevance to the issue of the veneration of saints, because actually, as a Catholic, I would wholeheartedly agree with you that I would not worship a saint. I would venerate a saint. I would respect and honor a saint. I would seek their intercession. Um, but it's ultimately, and all of us recognize this, it's the power of God through working through the saint that the great things are accomplished. So, for example, as I mentioned in the previous um, conversation with Acts chapter 5, Peter, and then Acts 19, Paul, God used his own glory and power to work through these apostles so that other people could receive it. The other thing I want to mention, too, is go back to my example of First Chronicles 29:20, where you have the Israelites in the same act of prostration and bowing down, bowing down to the Lord and before the king. Now, obviously, we know that our God is a jealous God from the second commandment, but God didn't seem to have a problem with them showing honor to the king and worship to the Lord. And if that distinction can be found in in First Chronicles 29:20, then I don't see an issue with at least saying we can venerate a saint and we worship God alone. Okay. Um, But uh, I was wondering what you thought about it being uh, in Revelation when they use that, that they're a warning that people not to worship other gods. And I I know I've seen it, uh, people worshiping other saints, including Mary. You know, they, they shouldn't. I know that. But some of them do. They actually 
Could, never pray to Jesus. They go straight mm. to Mary instead. Well, could, could I just ask you, when you say you've seen someone worshiping Mary, what, what did you see? Well, I hear what they say. Ah, I see. And, and what you they, know, they, they talk about. And they, they say they want Mary to save them. Mm. Okay, Swan? Yeah, I mean, so it really depends on what's going on in the person's heart and what they're doing, right? Because there is a way in which one could say, you know, you can have, let's say, Mary save you, and it's by her calling upon her son to use his power, to use his glory, to use his merits to absolve you of your sins. We don't believe as Catholics that, let's say, the saint in themselves has the power to do anything. It is through Christ that we are able to reach the saints because it was Christ's cross that destroyed the barrier between heaven and earth. So we're able to communicate with them, and the saint is able to pray on our behalf to God and to be able to help us in that way. And so we should be careful then. And I would also tell you that um, if any Catholic priest heard someone say like, oh, I would rather pray to Mary than to Jesus, or I can't pray to Jesus at all, just Mary, that Catholic priest would be like, hey, you need to back up a little bit and, and be careful there, right? And so even for us as Catholics, there are spiritual boundaries there that we are careful and aware of. But, in, for, the, like, but for the rule itself, right, the rule is that we venerate a saint and we worship God alone. Uh, and I've often heard Catholic priests say, you know, if, if you better check yourself before you wreck yourself uh, when people do that, say that kind of thing. That's that's the yeah. mm-hmm. that's very theological language. Dan, I, I appreciate that. I do, Catholics, I, I I'd never tire of saying we're not above the sin of idolatry. I mean, we've uh, Catholics have committed every sin. And so maybe you have uh, seen that, but that is not the, yeah. the teaching of the Catholic Church. And I would uh, like to conclude by saying how happy I am that we have Swan Sona uh, back. Swan, it's always uh, a delight uh, to get to talk with you. You do great work, and, uh, and you are a voice of reason. Uh, in a world often that has tired of reason, you are tireless uh, in, in defending the faith. So thanks for coming back, Swan. It's good to have you back. Yeah, no problem. Uh, Tomorrow, two hours, open forum, call and ask whatever you like. Don't forget to check out what Swan Sona does. Uh, you can do that by going to YouTube and just search Intellectual Catholicism, and you'll find out what he's up to now. You want to see the old stuff, go to Intellectual Conservatism. That stuff is still available as well. Uh, again, thank you, Swan, and thank you all for joining us today. We'll see you tomorrow, God willing, right here on Catholic Answers Live. Catholic Answers Live.